This is episode 168 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and we are back with part two today with Kelly Salmon and all things total laryngectomy. So this episode will be all about the post-op of total laryngectomy. So I hope you all enjoy these episodes. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. In the hospital, you know, they have this major surgery and, you know, keep in mind that these surgical procedures can be anywhere from eight hours to 12 to sometimes longer. Holy cow. Yeah, it's, and and if you ever have an opportunity as a student or even as a clinician to shadow or observe one of these procedures. I mean, it is a marathon. I was lucky enough to observe a total laryngectomy when I was a student at a a big medical center in New Jersey. And then um, I did it again um, when I worked at the Head and Neck Center. And I mean, I I tell people, you know, whatever these doctors earn, like they actually (laughs) deserve it because this is, it it is a marathon. It's, you know, eight to 12 hours. They're not alone, obviously, you know, there are surgical assistants and nurses and anesthesiologists and surgical residents, but everybody, you know, it's, it's a meticulous procedure to really dissect away the larynx and make sure that all of the or as much as possible all of the disease has been removed and you know think of all of the major blood vessels and nerves and you know other structures in our neck that are all super close and sometimes attached to our larynx so it's it's really um quite the procedure so so they they go through this you know eight plus hour procedure. And then typically as speech language pathologists, we actually are in the room seeing the patient um, typically on post-op day number one. Um, So we see them the day after, um, or at least we try to. Um, You know, some individuals, they're just not ready. Um, You know, they're in too much pain. They um, have a lot of swelling or, you know, they're not awake and alert enough because of the pain medications or the effects of the anesthesia. But Generally, um, we're trying to get in there on the first day after surgery to really check in with the patient, see where they are, and kind of start the process again of educating the patient and the family about um, options for communication, you know, talking to them about expectations in terms of when they might be able to eat or drink something again. So we're getting in there as soon as possible. And in terms of exactly what is covered or exactly what is supplied to the patient, that may vary a little bit from one institution to the next um, because there may be 
pathways that are established, um, time points for when things happen. But I can share a little bit about the experience um, at the institution where I practiced for several years and in some places, and generally this is what we try to do for patients, is to provide the patient with an electrolarynx that becomes theirs, that they can take with them while they're in the hospital. And when it comes to planning for um, something like this, of giving a patient an electrolarynx, you know, it's not a free product. So how do institutions do this? Well, when it comes to having the surgery, you know, there's obviously a lot of costs that are wrapped into the OR or into the operating expenses. And so sometimes what they'll do is they'll put together a post-operative kit or a post-operative care kit that is included kind of in the OR charge. Um, and the items in that kit become the patients. Um, and that's kind of one easier way for people to wrap that expense up in the inpatient setting. And so included in that kit is an electrolarynx. Now, typically, it's kind of your entry-level electrolarynx, right? And we could spend a whole separate section talking about the different types of electrolaryngees that are available, but think of them like cars, right? You've got your Toyota Prius, and then you've got your Lexus LX400. I just made that up, but you know what I mean? Like you've got um, entry level and you've got luxury um, in terms of options for bells and whistles of what it can do. So generally the ones that we're giving patients in the hospital, inpatient, are kind of your basic electrolarynx that's going to do the job and it's gonna work for the patient as a means of communication um, from the very beginning. And again, it's something they can take with them, which is important and I'll explain why here in a moment, but we'll get them this electrolarynx. And when you think of an electrolarynx, you typically think of this you know, handheld device that has a button on it to turn it on and off. Maybe it's got a few options to modify how loud it is or whether it's high pitch or low pitch. And we typically think of someone using an electrolarynx by placing it on their neck somewhere, right? Either in the submental space or on the lateral neck. But when someone is in acute care and they just had surgery a day ago or a few days ago, typically um, it is not an option to place that electrolarynx anywhere on the neck because there's incision lines and sutures and drains and there's lots of swelling and um, it can be painful to the touch. And so we're avoiding placing that electrolarynx on the neck. And a typical electrolarynx in the box uh, when it when it arrives is something called an intraoral adapter. And essentially this adapter looks like a just a, a fancy straw. It can have a bend to it or it can be just kind of a, a straight vertical extension from the electrolarynx, but it fits on the head of the electrolarynx. And the straw component is the intraoral adapter. And that's typically our first step in training someone to use an electrolarynx is to place this intraoral adapter in the oral cavity and that creates the sound source which they can then shape with their articulators. You know, it can take a little while to get the hang of it. Patients don't always like how it sounds, but it's our first attempt in restoring communication for an individual. It's not always the only attempt in acute care in particular. Sometimes a patient may not even be ready to 
start working with the electrolarynx, with the intraoral adapter at the beginning. So we use a lot of our other skills and kind of developing other means of communication or facilitating communication. Sometimes it's as simple as using uh, pen and paper. For some, it's using a boogie board, which is kind of a dry, you know, a, a clean version of a dry erase board, or they might use a dry erase board, or you might have patients who want to take advantage of uh, using a text-to-speech app on their, um, on their smartphone. So there's a lot of different options out there to just facilitate basic communication. I think it might be in health on their website. They have an easy, basic needs communication board that can be downloaded um, and printed out. And I think it's in more than one language. So that's another option if a patient just needs a quick way to point to, you know, express that they're having pain or they need to use the restroom, et cetera. So there's lots of different things that we can be doing to make sure that this individual is able to communicate at least their basic needs um, in the acute care setting for sure. And then we play a role along with the nurses in educating the patient and the family on, again, caring for an, um, a laryngectomy tube. Uh, what is an HME? How long does it, or how often does it need to be changed? What can we expect um, when we go home? There's also sometimes patients are sent home, home with a uh, suction machine. So knowing when to use it and when to try to avoid using it. So a lot of that happens, us being part of that interprofessional team and collaborating on preparing this patient for the next steps. I will mention in terms of next steps, you know, not everybody is able to discharge directly home after their laryngectomy. Some patients have to go to inpatient rehab or they need to go um, for a stay in skilled nursing. And that's where being provided with an electrolarynx on the inpatient side really is important because when it comes to laryngectomy supplies, and again, this could be a whole other discussion, but laryngectomy supplies and how they're covered by insurance is that typically, depending on insurance, whether you have Medicare or private insurance or Medicaid, it varies, you know, depending on the insurer, but the bottom line is typically any medical supply, including an electrolarynx, um, in order for it to be covered, the individual can't be in an institution or be receiving home care services. So if I don't provide an electrolarynx to that patient while they're an inpatient, and then they go to an inpatient rehab or they go to a skilled nursing facility and they don't have an electrolarynx, it's either the burden of that next level of care facility to buy one for the patient. And we all know how likely that is to happen, that they're going to you know, take a cut in their bottom line to purchase a an electrolarynx that the patient's going to take with them. Um, so that rarely... And by likely, you mean not at all. Exactly. So yeah. so that, that pretty much never happens, right? So now, unfortunately, the patient is stuck without a means of communication until they have completed rehab, skilled nursing, and even home care, because it's the same situation with home care. We know that home care 
they are typically providing the supplies, whether it's, you know, gauze pads or uh, saline bullets or any of those types of medical supplies and electrolarynx would be considered in that same category. And same thing, that home care agency isn't going to, you know, take the money out of their pocket to buy the person an electrolarynx. So, then the patient has to wait until they're done with their home care episode to then be able to take advantage of their insurance benefits to purchase an electrolarynx. So that's why it's so important, if at all possible, to advocate that we provide uh, these individuals with an electrolarynx. And I will say for these entry-level electrolaryngees, they're not super, super expensive. They're usually in the ballpark of about $200. So it's not a huge operating expense um, for the hospital itself, um, and it provides so much benefit to the patient. Now, there are electrolaryngees that cost a whole lot more than that, but again, that's, you know, talking about, you know, the, the entry level versus the luxury brand. But also the benefit of the hospital providing that electrolarynx is that the patient's insurance was not charged for that electrolarynx. And so if, you know, six months after surgery, the patient says, you know what, I want to stick with using an electrolarynx, but I want one that has a little more options in terms of varying pitch or the quality. I'd like a little bit better quality sound. They can then use their insurance benefits to purchase that kind of leveled up electrolarynx if they would like to. So there's a lot of benefits to being able to provide an electrolarynx on the inpatient side of things. And, you know, it's just kind of talking um, through the budget piece. Um, And sometimes that can be challenging. But ultimately, if you can get your head and neck surgeons on board, you know, they want the best outcomes for their patients as well. So, you know, they're often willing to kind of work on, you know, the trade-offs in terms of the bottom line with with the money aspect of things. So I would definitely encourage that, you know, if you're at an institution that maybe doesn't do this now, you know, start thinking about how to maybe make that happen for your patients. It's a huge benefit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for illustrating all that. Yeah, because I think, you know, that's something that so many SLPs don't know about or and and so many of our facilities don't know about, you know, why can't we get this guy an electrolarynx and, well, there's this payer and there's that payer and why didn't they get it before? And so thank you for illustrating all that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, things now are even more challenging because prior to the pandemic, you know, there were some options for getting like a loaner electrolarynx that you could borrow for a patient for a period of time until they could get one. Um, But a lot of those programs have kind of stopped sharing things um, for for that reason of, you know, not wanting to have an electrolarynx jumping from one individual or one house to the next. So we're, we're a little more, even a little more tightly strapped now than before in terms of options to seek out an electrolarynx for a patient who doesn't have one yet or perhaps doesn't have financial means at all to get one. So, so yeah, that's just an important piece of it or uh, an important piece to uh, consider for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, the last thing in terms of acute care that I wanted to talk about was the swallowing piece. So typically when people in that post-operative phase at the time of surgery, uh, the physicians will typically either place 
a nasogastric tube or a Dobhoff tube, or I know there's other names for it, but you know, they're, they're placing some version of a, a nasogastric tube to provide the patient with their nutrition and their hydration and their medications in that immediate post-operative phase. There are some people who will have a PEG tube placed at the time of surgery, and that's typically for individuals who have either a complex reconstruction where the expectation is that it's going to take more time for them to heal, or they have, for example, it, it wasn't just a total laryngectomy, but they also had a total pharyngectomy, or they had a partial glossectomy, where there's been a lot more interruption to the anatomy, where the expectation in terms of returning to kind of functional intake is much longer. So, Standard is usually a nasogastric tube, but some people do have a PEG tube placed because of what we know about the extent of their surgery and the expectations afterwards. So, you know, part of our role in the acute care setting is setting the patient's expectations. Most people after a total laryngectomy are typically in the hospital for about seven days, about a week. Some people are there longer if they end up having complications or they had you know, a more involved reconstruction, or again, there's multiple levels of structures involved in their surgery, but the average is about seven days inpatient. Now, usually, again, this might differ from facility to facility, but usually patients are told to expect that they won't be eating or drinking anything by mouth for at least 10 to 14 days after surgery. And the main reason for that is things just need to heal, right? We've taken out a bunch of structures and we've recreated this new pharynx and it's all sewn together or sutured together. And we just need time for those areas where we've reconnected things to make sure that they've fully healed. If we start eating or drinking too soon, we run the risk of disrupting those suture lines, creating openings or fistulas, which are never a good thing to have postoperatively. So, you know, patients are told that, you know, you won't be eating or drinking anything um, for at least 10, 10 days to 14 days or two weeks. And then at that point in time is when we usually assess them for their readiness to begin eating and drinking. And I will say that's not always something that we're doing as the speech language pathologist. Sometimes it is assessed 100% by the head and neck surgeon who clears the patient to begin a liquid diet first, for example, and then tells them, you know, they can start progressing as tolerated. If there is suspicion for a fistula in the inpatient setting, then there might be a recommendation to complete some type of study to look for a leak or look for a fistula. And again, sometimes we might be involved in that, but sometimes we might not. And it makes sense why we might not, only because the purpose of that particular study, you know, usually it's it's a gastrographin study. It's done in radiology, you know, it's done in fluoro, um, and they're really just looking to make sure that there's not a leak, that there's not a fistula, and there's this um, fluid getting out from the newly created pharynx and into the neck. So if you think about it, you know, our expertise in terms of being able to evaluate dysphagia isn't 
necessarily needed for that particular study. You know, that's something that the radiologist can look at and determine that, yes, we've got a leak or no, we don't um, without us having to say that. And in fact, I'm not a, a trained radiologist and, and I wouldn't necessarily always be able to pick up on something like that. So if though um, somebody's in the inpatient setting for longer than those two weeks where we typically keep them MPO, we might be involved in a modified barium swallow where we are just looking to make sure that there's no structural impediment to swallowing, to make sure that there's no narrowing or stricture, make sure there's no spasms happening, looking to make sure there's not, you know, significant reflux or anything else that might prevent this individual from being successful. So generally in the inpatient setting, if someone has kind of your typical course of being in the hospital for about seven days, we may have absolutely nothing to do with evaluating swallowing at that point in time. But there may be some circumstances where we are involved. So I just put that out there because, again, it may vary from institution to institution. Again, sometimes we might be part of that process and sometimes we might not be. And it's not because they're leaving us out, but because we really aren't needed to answer the question that they're looking to answer. So that's that's my piece on, on that for sure. So the next thing I thought I would talk about just a little bit is again, in the acute care setting, we're getting this individual ready to move on to the next level of care. And that may be going straight home and having a home care nurse and hopefully speech pathologist coming out to work with them. We do, again, talk to them about the types of supplies that they're, that they're going to need at, at this point in time. What supplies an individual needs can certainly change over their post-operative course. Um, it can change after a few months after surgery. It can change years after surgery, depending on their individual needs. But in this acute care setting and preparing someone for discharge or preparing them for the next level of care, the main things that we want to make sure that they know how to operate or at least know what they are and how to use them are the electrolarynx with the oral adapter. Again, we can start training in the acute care setting. But again, the, the bulk of the practice and getting really good and, and getting fluent with it um, is going to happen over time. Um, and we also tell patients that, you know, some of them get really frustrated and really disappointed that, you know, that it quote unquote doesn't work um, when they're in acute care. But it's just like anything else that we're trying to train a patient to do. It takes lots of repetition and lots of practice and feedback and, and all of those things. So we, we try to help encourage them and let them know it's, you know, they're not going to become like the guy they saw on the video overnight, that it's going to take a little bit of time and practice and, you know, finding their sweet spot and, you know, getting good at turning it on and off and, you know, learning how to modify their rate of speech and everything else to optimize their intelligibility. So electrolarynx with the oral adapter, top of the list of what they should have. Again, if they're not super successful with it, then making sure that they have some means of communication that they're comfortable with. It could be pencil and paper, it could be the dry erase board, the communication board, etc. The next supplies are a laryngectomy tube, the tube holders, which keep it in place, and HMEs. So a laryngectomy tube, it looks a lot like a tracheotomy tube, but it's made of clear silicone and it's super soft and super flexible. It's not rigid like a tracheotomy tube is. The similarities also include 
kind of a it doesn't have a base plate or a flange, so to speak, like a tracheotomy tube does, but on either side, it has a connection point to secure it in place. So just like you would loop the Velcro tube holders into a tracheotomy tube, you will see those same tracheotomy tube tube holders with the Velcro used with a laryngectomy tube. Although ideally, there are tube holders that are made specifically for laryngectomy tubes. Those ideally should be the ones that are used because they're designed to um, not tug and pull on those little plastic uh, flanges. Um, when we use the Velcro ones, we tend to put too much tension on it and then that little piece of um, silicone breaks off the tube and then you need a brand new one. So just know that there are tube holders that are made specifically for uh, laryngectomy tubes, although more often than not, we see uh, people using um, tracheotomy tube holders um, instead. And it's not usually a problem, but it can be a problem. So people just need to know that. And then the HMEs are super important. An HME is essentially a filter um, and the HME cassette fits right into the hub of the laryngectomy tube. And the importance of the HMEs, we talk about it during the preoperative counseling, um, but then we cover it again postoperatively when they're in the hospital. But the HME, again, stands for heat and moisture exchange. So as you might be able to guess, that little filter or that little device that fits into the laryngectomy tube, it is doing a big job. And that big job is to mimic or replace what our nose and our upper airway normally do as we're breathing the air in. So our nose and our upper airway, if we're breathing through our nose, the nose itself and the rest of our pharynx and upper airway, they function to do three big things. They function to filter the air. So, you know, in our ambient environment, there's dust and uh, pollen and other things that um, we don't want to inhale into our lungs. So our nose kind of traps that with our uh, special cilia and lining of our nose. So it filters the air before it makes its way down to our trachea and lungs. The upper airway and nose also heats the air. So, you know, depending on where you live, um, it may um, be doing more work than others. So if you're in Miami on a hot summer day and it's 100% humidity, um, the air is pretty warm and it's pretty uh, humidified as you're breathing it in. But if you're up in Toronto in the middle of January and it's 15 degrees and it's 20% humidity, that air coming in your nose, if it were to go directly in your lungs, it would be really irritating. So when we breathe through our nose, the air does get warmed up and moisture gets added to it so that by the time it reaches our lungs, it's actually pretty close to our body temperature and the humidity is brought up near 90%. So again, if we take the upper airway out of the equation and we're breathing through our neck, we could be breathing in all of these environmental pollutants that could irritate the lining of our trachea, irritate our lungs. The air, if it's really cold or if it's really dry, it can also irritate the mucosa of our trachea and our lungs, which creates more mucus, creates more coughing, and just can be an overall problem for someone who is a neck breather. So these little filters or these little foam cartridges play a huge role in pulmonary health um, for individuals after laryngectomy. So we really do spend quite a bit of time 
explaining this to patients and saying this is you know replacing what your nose and your throat used to do before um, and this is going to help keep your secretions um, at bay, help you to manage them, keep them thin, easy to cough up, um, or try to minimize the amount of secretions that you're producing. So we do spend a lot of time educating patients on the importance of using an HME. And the key component with HMEs, the, the foam itself is treated with uh, calcium chloride, which is a salt. And the salt plays a big role as well. The salt, number one, has antimicrobial properties. So it helps to make sure that we're not um, breathing in bacteria and viruses and things like that. But its other job is to retain moisture. And the moisture, breathing the air through the moisturized foam, is what's helping to add moisture to the air as the patient is breathing in. As you can imagine, salt dissolves, so it's not going to be active forever. Um, and so these little cartridges or these little HMEs the recommendation is that they be replaced at a minimum of every 24 hours. So if it's been in for 24 hours, we can expect that the salt has dissolved, doesn't have the same antimicrobial properties, and it's not going to be as efficient in um, retaining moisture. So it gets thrown away and a new one gets placed. Now, that's not to say that people don't have to change them more often. Uh, some people, if they do have a lot of mucus or a lot of secretions and they're coughing that up and the foam gets really saturated, the person's gonna have trouble breathing through it. So sometimes they have to be thrown out and replaced more frequently than that. So those are a lot of things that we talk to the patient about and make sure that they're aware of. Um, I've had patients who try to extend the life of their um, HMEs for like days at a time. Like they try to come up with their own like saline solutions and they, they, you know, find a way to open it up and take out the foam and clean it under, you know, the sink and do their whole thing. And I understand that they want to like make it work, but it's not ideal. It's not recommended. So we try to make sure that we send the patient out with at least a package of 30 HMEs so that they have some to start with. But that's an ongoing thing that they're going to have to use, you know, lifelong. So we really, we, we really harp on that with the patients to make sure that they understand it. And then finally, suction. Some patients are sent home with suction um, in that acute phase after surgery, just to help with managing their their secretions. It's not the type of suction like you would do deep suctioning with a, a trach tube um, because we, we don't want the patients to be, you know, putting any kind of tubing into their trachea or airway because it's just going to cause more irritation and ultimately cause more production of mucus or secretion. So it's typically the kind of suction where you have um, a Yankauer suction and we're encouraging the person to cough their mucus up themselves and just suction it from the stoma site. Eventually, the goal is to not need that suction at all because, in theory, this individual should be able to have a productive cough and clear their mucus on their own. And if they're using HMEs consistently, the amount of mucus their production should um, stabilize where it's not an issue that they're coughing up copious amounts of secretions all the time. So we kind of work with training these individuals on, on what to expect going home or, or going to the next level of care, which kind of segues into the last thing I was going to talk about, which is, you know, what if you work in acute rehab or subacute rehab or even in home care and you don't see people that have had total laryngectomy very often, you know, what 
what resources are out there for you to kind of help you work through these cases um, or what's out there to help you get up to speed if this is a patient population that you're interested in learning more about or gaining more skills to be able to help them out. You know, is there clinical support out there? Is, uh, you know, what kinds of things are available? And I would say that fortunately, there there is a lot out there. And, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier about some of the patient education materials, there's also lots of great free opportunities for clinical or professional education as well. And again, I can kind of send a list of some of the things that I know of that are out there that people can pursue or, or register for if they're interested. But other recommendations that I have are to keep an open line of communication with the primary acute care speech pathologist or even the outpatient speech pathologists that are working with the head and neck surgeons um, to be able to reach out to them, um, kind of like a phone a friend um, situation, to be able to ask questions and to continue to learn more as you see these patients. Um, you know, sometimes we don't have a question until we have a patient in front of us and we're not sure what we're looking at or what we should be doing um, in terms of their training or something doesn't look right. Um, is this expected or what can I do next to help this individual? on their path to rehabilitation, you know, and as being one of those outpatient SLPs, you know, in the head and neck center, I really enjoyed working with the clinicians in the community that were at the rehab hospital or at the skilled nursing facilities or in home care. I enjoyed having those discussions and I enjoyed having that opportunity to kind of give that one-on-one -on -one, um, education as it's happening. Because again, sometimes we, we don't really know what we're looking at until it's right in front of us. Um, and then we're like, oh boy, I'm not sure what to do here. <laughs> um, so it's nice to have that relationship where you can call or email the clinician and just say, hey, I know you saw Mr. So-and-so preoperatively. He's with me now and I'm not sure what to do next or I'm noticing this or that. Is it normal? What, what should I do? Um, I think that's kind of the, the community we should be fostering amongst each other to just help each other out, um, especially with this patient population, because we don't all get training to work with these individuals, or we don't see them all that often, um, depending on where you are. Um, so so when, when they do come up, it's nice to have somebody that you can rely on for sure. You know, I, I'd also plug um, a couple of the resources in the MedSLP Collective. There is a really great resource that um, talks about the difference between tracheostomy and a laryngectomy stoma. So just kind of key. Which is huge. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Like knowing, <laughs> is this a trach patient or is this someone who's had a laryngectomy, which you know, believe it or not, it comes up a lot, right? It does. Um, it does. Yeah. So that, that resource is great to not only use for your own professional education, but to help um, provide education to the nursing staff or um, nursing aides that might be in the facility that you're working in. There's also uh, my presentation from the beginning of December, which is a much briefer version than this discussion, but um, it, I do have, you know, some of the illustrations and, and pictures of some of the things that we were talking about today there. Again, I'd recommend the episode number 76 with uh, Lori Winterholm. She talks about dysphagia and total laryngectomy, so that's a great resource to learn a little bit more about that topic. 
And the last thing that I would plug is just that, again, um, ATOS and InHealth, you know, they might be manufacturers, you know, they might sell products for patient use um, for people who have total laryngectomy. But I have to say that both of these companies have done really amazing jobs in developing their clinical education. Both of them have full-time clinical specialists on their staff. And these individuals cover different regions of the country. Um, and they're available for anybody, um, any of us, to call them and say, hey, I have this total laryngectomy here in my skilled nursing facility, and I haven't seen someone with a total laryngectomy for 10 years, and I am sure technology has changed. I'm sure how we manage them has changed. Can you help me out? And they will. They'll talk to you on the phone. They will have a video chat with you. Um, if they're in your area, they'll drive to you and, and help you out. And I have to say, you know, this didn't become a specialty area of mine by, you know, just reading textbooks. Um, you know, a lot of it happens in real time when you've got a patient in front of you. Um, and sometimes you're presented with challenges where you're just stumped and you don't know what to do next. And I can't tell you how many times I've relied on my you know, clinical specialists and said, hey, I need help here. And they're like, yeah, let's let's get on FaceTime and, and show me what you've got. Yeah, of course, with your patient's consent, which they always consent if, you know, it's going to help solve their problem. Um, but honestly, um, these people are out there um, and they're available to help. Um, so I always encourage people to take advantage of that. Um, and how to get in touch with them is freely available on the website. You can reach out and say, hey, I have a question or could you come and help me in service our nursing staff or what information do you have that I can use for my next patient and then both of them also offer lots of free webinars and clinical series and all those types of things so the information is out there and for the most part there are a lot of free opportunities available for you to kind of extend or expand upon your knowledge if it's something that you're interested in doing, of course. But um, yeah, there's there's quite a bit out there. So I would encourage people, if you have any interest at all, to kind of look into it for sure. Awesome, Kelly. Thank you so much. No problem. I know. This was so helpful. This was probably the most <laughs> comprehensive laryngectomy class I've ever gotten. So thank you. <laughs> um, I, know it, I know it was quite a bit, but you know, I always tell people, don't be afraid to ask questions. So whether it's in the collective or by sending an email to myself or any of the clinical specialists out there, you know, when you work with this patient population, you're super passionate about caring for them and making sure that they're getting the best care. So um, I would never hesitate to answer someone's question or to help guide them clinically because it's that important for these individuals. It means a lot to them to have someone to even know what a laryngectomy is. So, um, so yeah, please ask questions and you know, that's what, what people who've been doing it, that's what we're here for. Awesome. Thank you so much. I know this is so helpful, especially if you're a clinician that, you know, didn't get a class on this in grad school, or like you said, just never really had experience with it. It's such a cool, unique population. And yeah, so thank you so much for sharing. This was so helpful, Kelly. Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, yeah. I'll share links with you that you can put okay. in the notes for people to, um, to find all of these great resources I mentioned. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thanks, Kelly. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. 
If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.